Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Kirk Gray. And this is Fred Schenkelberg. Hey, Kirk. Good talking to you again. Yeah, Fred. Good to hear from you. Hey, I got a question, and it spun off a thought that I think we could talk about today, if, you've, if you're open for that. And one of our listeners, I, actually, in the last week or so, I've gotten about five or six different questions. But this one was particularly interesting, is they were focusing in, and I'm going to, um, you know, paraphrase here, but they were focusing on uh, crack propagation on mm-hmm. this different types of equipment. And he was interested in, or they were interested, I don't know what their pronouns are, um, uh, was, you know, I've done time to failure data analysis in my mm-hmm. previous work, but I don't think that we don't have failures. We have cracks that are growing and we want to know how long they'll last. And I'm like, well, that's degradation analysis. And it's a little mm-hmm. bit different and there's ways to go about it. And I says, well, what else are you worried about with these products? You know, cause crack propagation is, is one failure. Right. And, and then there was a, a quick discussion back and forth about that. Well, that's what he's been asked to work on. It was just this part of it. And I said, okay, well, right. right, that's fair. But I, I know that you've run into this where, you get a team that's I'm only going to do solder joints. And then you find out that they buy really crap components that don't really work, even when they're properly soldered on a board. Right. (laughs) Right. Or, you know, have a delamination packaging issue or, you know, something like that. Right. And, and and I think you were mentioning when we were just chatting here for a minute, you said, you know, just, just the circuit board itself has so many ways it can fail. Oh Yeah. And so many manufacturing variations that affect those. Yeah, and and that's that's the problem. It's it's isolating. Okay, you know when when we test something, we we're really limited on on how many factors we can test at one time, and and um, be able to uh, attribute the rate or change in rate of say crack propagation. Uh, in in our calculations or our measurements and you know you can do design of experiments and try and uh, model that but the reality is also you're only modeling um probably an ideal uh manufactured condition yeah and and that's that's another problem i'm thinking of this crack situation is that you know if you if you're looking at it just from thermal cycling right we yeah and that's common we'll we'll do thermal cycling and use that to to do cracks but if you're an aircraft and you're looking at cracks and that on on the fuselage it's pressurization and depressurization you know putting right this pressure on it and so you can do that but in reality it's those cracks will propagate with every time you land there's a shock to the whole system right that's different than compression and and then there's freeze thaw and it's freeze right. thaw with a little bit of moisture in it you know right. that makes the cracks go it takes apart granite i'm quite sure it'll take apart steel <laughs> you know and then you get this exposed metals that then start to corrode um and then somebody sticks their chewing gum in it and so it gets this biohazard in there and, you know <laughs> it's just you know. Yeah, yeah. and then the duct tape on top of that That's you get right. this. <laughs> yeah and bailing wire and but it's it's one of those things where we isolate you know a single stress in a, a single mechanism because our experimental minds can wrap around 
when we simplify it to a larger degree. And now one of the arguments is that the dominant stresses like on an aircraft fuselage is the compression cycles. Right. Expansion, contraction is a a pressurized at altitude. And, you know, it's just there's temperature gradients across that. A whole system. Well, there's load, you there's know, load. where it's attached, and right. the wings put a bunch of weight on it in different ways right. than, than the nose cone does. from the engines. And from and, air turbulence and from people walking on it. And, and it. And right. And, and I, I would imagine that, you know, you do have some feedback or some recording of these. You can easily do that on, on many aircraft, you know, and do kind of a, a, a summary or, or, or condensed, you know, profile of some of those stresses from you have to do an average of a lot of planes yeah. or whatever this structure is like a 737 boeing 737 the wings you know yeah. boeing boeing does do uh fatigue load testing and they they do um and I've, at least the engineers that showed me this show that they actually fatigue to a point of failure in the factory mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. maybe one or one probably <laughs> they can't afford a whole lot of them, oh, but yeah. they do that to an actual wing. They'll but load it's compared it to, till it break. and it's right. compared and, to their modeling and, right. and simulation right. work right. and right. stuff. And and they use that not to do the the data analysis, but to confirm their modeling. Exactly. Right now, Seinberg. Um, and I'm drawing a blank on his first name. I believe it was John, but I'm not sure. Um, he did. He's written a number of books on vibration and vibration analysis and the degradation mm-hmm. vibration. Mm-hmm contributes and it was he did a lot of work in the aircraft industry right and one of the takeaways from that is that and i also ran into this with somebody was looking at tracking how much vibration and shock uh, packages got they were shipping something through the system and and Mm -hmm. they would put accelerometers in there and measure it Mm -hmm. and it was explained to me by both these folks that you know if i get two or three two foot drops, you know, off of a conveyor belt or off of a truck, all the other vibration is inconsequential, <laughs> you know? Right. Because the, the reality is that the shock and vibration from, you know, road of truck hauling and even loading and unloading, uh, is fairly mild. One to two G's as I understand it. And, right. and, uh, but you hit a big bottle over- or you get in an accident. Now you got a 50 G event and right. all the other stuff doesn't matter. <laughs> you know? Right. The shocks, you know, a very high pole shock, uh, essentially rings the, the product in all of its frequencies yep. and, and causes the most extensive fatigue damage. That's why repetitive, those pneumatic, what we call halt vibration, pneumatic, Pneumatic repetitive shock systems are the most dam- fatigue damage, you know, creating. Well, because they hit so many frequencies simultaneously. Right, right. They're, they're, yeah. they're single point shocks. And as we know from what Fourier transforms or the uh, <laughs> math, oh, the fun math stuff that I never used, <laughs> <laughs> that, that the most an ideal pulse. An ideal, you know, time zero has equal frequencies. Uh, is is a summation of all frequencies, and essentially that's you know what you're doing when you when you uh, hit a an object with a hammer, you're stimulating all its natural resonances, and that's that's where fatigue damage occurs. Yep. If it doesn't resonate, if it doesn't 
resonate in its natural fatigue, uh, natural resonance frequencies, then you're not creating fatigue damage. If it does, that's where, as we've seen with the, what that the bridge, uh, famous uh, bridge collapse. Oh, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The- so, so that got into a, uh, you know, in a resonance, and <laughs> that was it. And took it apart. Uh, no, it's a, it, but it's, the argument was, is that, you know, there's, there's a few peaks in every truck's drive or, or route that, that are dominant. And so right. if right. we can secure our products or protect it from those, the drive isn't long enough that this just the road vibration or the engine vibration isn't sufficient to cause significant damage. So we're not going to worry about that. And the same with right. like solder joints is, you right. know, we're going to model that, you know, the maximum thermal cycling. Now right. there's all kinds of other things that can happen, but either the frequency of, of very large shocks on say a, a server circuit board right. is pretty insignificant in right. probability of occurring right. versus the, everyday thermal cycling that that eventually takes that solder joint apart but there's the back to the corrosion in and cracking and and those kinds of things some it is so dependent on the use cases and where it's located in the world exactly. you know if i if we yeah, put yeah. A, a a device up in in your neck of the woods in the you know 5000 right. foot elevation Air's thinner, so you get a bigger daily temperature change than right. a lot of places do. Right, and when the sun is 17% more energy than at sea level, up here, there's 17% more energy in the sunlight. So things heat up uh, quicker. quicker and, 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 and so, you know, and there's more differential across the structure in temperature because of the, you know, capacity of the air, the sun, energy. And so, yeah, right. So, right. And... <laughs> The materials make a difference. Uh, you know, even one solder type, you know, we've got now with lead-free, we've got several different oh, pictures yeah. I saw solder. a list the other day. It was like yeah, 15 so, different formulations. And I'm sure they don't all crack at the same rate. No. I mean, they don't, no. you know, they, they fatigue differently. And certainly as we moved into lead-free solder, we realized that, yeah, there's more of a, a brittle function. I mean, uh, lead, we knew all about leaded solder. Really. 50 and, and, plus years of playing with it yeah <laughs> and it was very forgiving uh, kind of had a relaxation you know so there, there are characteristics that change over time and you know as as we uh, evolve in our uh, materials science and materials and and of course the whole lead free was a legislative action i don't know that we would have gone uh, without the uh, no, the solder is more expensive. Um, yeah, and and we knew so much about lead solder. Some people would say that that probably was a mistake for maybe the wrong reasons. I don't know. It's too well. Late it's now. it's pretty good not having lead uh, in your water systems right, and right, stuff right, like that. Right. You know, look at the Romans. There was one of the theories <laughs> is the why they all failed. They had lead pipes for their yeah. aquifers. You know, <laughs> yeah, we don't want another Flint, Michigan. Well, there's that too. It's like we haven't learned in two thousand years, but uh, we try. Right, right, but we're trying to not. Uh, obviously, we we don't want to throw. Part of that was uh, electronics uh, ending up in the landfills, which I yeah. think will always still be a. Still be a problem, yeah. Now, one of the things that is curious is that I, I ran in recently to, uh, and I used this as an example when I was answering this question about the crack propagation and analysis and so on. Is that it? They it was a different group, and they were talking about, well, we have this temperature humidity chamber, 
And so that's what we use to qualify our designs when they come through. I says, okay, great. What failure mechanisms are you trying to find that you solved? <laughs> you know, yeah. with, what's your use environment? It is, oh, it's all on the coast. It's, you know, we, we put this equipment on piers and along the coast. And he says, do you add salt to your humidity? Oh, no, it makes the <laughs> chamber fall apart. This is right. Well, well, what kind of failures do you that. see in the field? <laughs> oh, we have salt corrosion all over our products all the time. Well, yeah, it kind of missed something there, didn't they? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I think part of the disconnect is, is that, you know, the testing equipment and so on is a big capital purchase for many organizations right. or if they're renting it. Um, and you got to narrow it down. Just it's there's not a, a salt chamber with vibration uh, temperature controlled and it you know does you know has insect infestation all at once they just <laughs> they we just don't make those right that often. right right it was it was like uh putting uh and there were companies that were putting you know you had the traditional halt chamber which was vibration and uh rapid thermal uh liquid nitrogen cooling yeah. and there were one or two companies that tried to put humidity in that situation and, and it, it would just, just destroy the hammers <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just not a good idea. So, yeah. uh, and well, part of that is that the equipment is accelerating. You know, we're using higher temperatures or higher temperature right. transitions. We're doing, you know, different kinds of vibration and higher vibration um, than would exist in the normal process. We haven't made high temperature bugs yet, you know, and that will crawl through and eat your insulation of your product. No, they need nominal temperatures. Uh, but Wait, it's this global warming will change that. Yeah, yeah, we're working on it. <laughs> but part of it is is our experimental method and our ability to model multivariable factors and interactions and all that stuff. We even in complex models, we assume the variables are independent. Even right. though wink wink nudge nudge, we know they're not. Exactly. <laughs> you, know? you know, sometimes I think we're delusional about, you know, the the complexities of it as as Einstein talked about, you know, our prediction of the weather. And even with all our computer models and everything we have and all the measurements we can make and satellites and ah pressures and you know, I mean just <laughs> don't forget amazing. atmospheric rivers that we've had out yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> And yet we're really not very good at predicting much beyond a week, oh, you know, yeah. two weeks. Yeah, Forget maybe it. 10 days. I yeah. any prediction two weeks in advance. Well, what's amazing here is that I can look at uh, like a, a weather uh, website that has our local weather and, and they'll show it by the minute when you ec expect the rain to start. And yeah. like at 10.05, the rain actually does right. start. It's well, sometimes. scary accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's only a day. Term, yeah, it's right. only a couple hours ahead of them. Only a couple hours, yes. They've gotten very good at watching the clouds come in over your area. Yeah. But telling you that that's going to happen two weeks in advance, like your, you know, your, what do you call it, atmospheric river? Yeah. That, yeah. that caused a massive destruction in California that so desperately needed the moisture. Yeah, but not all at once. We didn't need it all at once. We didn't need uh, right. reservoirs overflowing. Right. All kinds right. of stuff. So, and we, you know, we certainly, with hurricanes and tornadoes and everything, we really only know those things about the time. And it's just like knowing, you know, something about a, a failure mechanism that's pretty pretty clear like a, a miss 
uh, mismanufacturing where a package uh, lead frame is is off and and misadjusted. You know, yeah. those kind of it's the immediate things. Okay, and it's just like that with with uh, the weather. We can't really predict far in advance, but we can know, you know, by looking at um, uh, a problem or some issue on the board at a short term failure yep. uh, is much more identifiable. Well, part of it is, is that we, we, we want to simplify it so we can make some <laughs> estimates and we have this desire to go, will this last 10 years or not kind of thing. And so we, you know, we do a lot of different things and uh, which we've talked about in the past to try to get a handle on that, try to get a reasonable or a rational or, or hallucinogenic, as I think you would say, uh, <laughs> estimate of its future performance. Even though it will be technologically obsolete in five years. And yeah, really it won't matter anyway. But it, it, the idea is, is that some of it is the scientific method and our ability to, to reproduce results and do all these kinds of things and then right. correlate them to, and, and do all the statistics type stuff right. and everything else. And as soon as you get done with the six month study, um, somebody changes the solder paste and now it's exactly. all, it's exactly. all different. <laughs> right. Right. Or that component, you know, things that you model, uh, no longer exist. If you've been modeling lead free, uh, I mean, leaded solders, you know, that no longer exists. You've got to go to lead-free models, yeah. and that's very different. Well, at some point, and I think I find it with electronics, is that, you know, the, uh, oh, what is that, the 0406 capacitors, I mean, yeah. you can see them. They're kind of nice. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> <laughs> but then they get yeah. down to these, you know, they're fractions of stuff. They're below a, a millimeter across kind of thing. Right. They're just tiny little specks or they're built into the circuit board. But the right. the role of of the way that material behaves to strains and stresses and reacts with solders and thermal cycling and everything else is uh, very complex. very different. And then at some point the size of them is such that the corrosive path across the body of it is so short yeah. that that dominates rather than solder joint failures right. or cracking right. of some sort. And so we get this problem. And half the locations of those don't really matter if they fail or not. Well, there's that too, capacitors <laughs> in particular. Um, I, I, I remember working with an electrical engineer once and he was, he, I said, why are there so many capacitors on this? And he goes, well, it's, I don't have time to sort out which ones I really need. So I just right. put them all yeah, on exactly. there. <laughs> just kind of a safety margin. Just put them all over the place. To absorb Knock down the, the trans, it was the electromagnetic uh, problems, transients, knockdown right. spikes, all kinds yeah. of reasons. They're hard to add afterwards. It's easier to add them and, you know, maybe take them not. off later. Yeah, exactly. And he said, it's sort of like I, I create the basic functional design and then I take out my salt and pepper shaker of different size capacitors and sprinkle them all <laughs> over the board. And he goes, yeah, that's about how I design it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Works for me. And they're not that expensive. So it's not like a major IC. You just, you know, they're fractions of a penny. Well, and then, well, there are, but when you put 200 of them on the board, one, the board's <laughs> got to be bigger. And two is you, you got to place them all, put solder on it. Yeah. And, right. and then, uh, at the time, I found from one of the big failure analysis labs that one third of the problems from circuit boards was due to capacitors. Yeah, and I said, and, he, and so my the guy I was working with said, well, that gives us justification to do a cost reduction program next year. You know, so we can now take off capacitors and get paid to do it in a rational way, <laughs> so that we save money on one the components, but two reducing failure rates. Okay, yeah. I get it. Oh, uh, man, it's just security. like when I, you know. <laughs> 
I told uh, um, uh, some of the uh, engineers in Dell, I said, look, these boards will operate at 135C if I, if I uh, suppress the uh, CPU's thermal trip. Yeah. And he says, well, is there some way we can get them to operate at, you know, limit or uh, get some money? Essentially, we don't need that. So why can we can we somehow make, you know, them operate at 100 degrees C and, and our max and put them in different places, you know, or no, or not, not that. But they wanted to take out the money. That was too much margin. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can we no. exchange margin for some savings? Oh, sure. We'll get rid of the silicon and we'll use yeah. silly putty instead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm thinking, no, you, my point is use the strength you have that's inherent in, in the product to find the, the, really the outliers, the ones that are the, the, worth the, solving. Get rid of the fans. Exactly. The ones that have late defects. You know, use that strength. You're just wasting it. You're When you put it, you know, when you do a 45 degree, you know, burn in, then that's just a waste of time. Yeah, it's going, yeah. of course, it's going to operate that. And yeah. they did have, they had this huge room where it was, you know, 40 degrees C, I think, you know, 90, 97. Self-heated from all the servers. Yeah, running. exactly. Exactly. And, <laughs> And they had them cycling uh, anyway. I won't get on. I won't rag on them. Well, I, we've talked about a handful but, of these yeah. before. But, you know, the ones that get me is they're, they're solely focused on the CPU. And they're running all these tests and all this stuff. But the memory chips that are part of the board that are supporting that, that circuit um, are failing in the testing that they're doing for the CPUs. And I says, well, why aren't you addressing the memory failures? Well, we're, we're studying the CPU. We're not studying that, the memory. That was another problem. Those dim, the little dim boards you yeah. used to plug in and out of your PC, the yeah. edge connectors would be come from the fact, come, come from the suppliers with not really uh, uh, clean contacts, not clean, and also not really useful for putting in and out very many times. Right, they exactly. Like They're right. They always, well, yeah, it was gold, so they would try to save on the gold molecules, and yep. they would have one layer maybe. And if you plugged it in more than once, you'd scrape that entire layer off, and you'd get fretting corrosion. Yep. But I would always deal with the fact that I got the new ones, and they weren't clean. And we we put them in a eighty-five, eighty-five. That's eighty-five degrees. C at at eighty five percent relative humidity, and well, they probably inevitably, corroded right up. Didn't they? Eventually, yeah. And I would get memory issues, and you know, according to protocol, I was test protocols. I was supposed to mark this down as a failure, but I, it happened so many times. I kind of refused to do the test because it would always go into the same uh, ridiculous cycle. Tell the vendor they need to clean them better, you know, something like that. And, you know, maybe they would for a while, but eventually they didn't. Yeah. And it was just kind of a churn of something that was a known process variation that caused a problem. But it was also very difficult to isolate because as soon as you plugged in and out that dim, problem was corrected. <laughs> problem disappeared. For a while. So, <laughs> oh, right. You'd have to go through the, again, you know, put it in a high temperature. Yeah, yeah. It wrote again. Trying to troubleshoot that, uh, you wouldn't, you know, unless you had a factory that's building a lot of these, you wouldn't know that. And some, yeah. some, you know, people at the, at the company levels that maintained them would plug them in and out, you know, and that's sometimes, as I say to, you know, 
<laughs> we get fresh metal on it. Yeah, all good. And it, it's like we say with a computer, you know, the first thing to do is reboot it and reset it. <laughs> well, it used to be that you hit the side of it because it reset all those cards. Yeah, yeah. right. But the, the yeah. idea, though, is that many of the failure mechanisms we deal with don't have a single stress. Now, some will have a, a dominant most, stress. Most failure mechanisms are have uh, interactions oh, with yeah. uh, with stresses. And so it, it really behooves people to think through what's the environment, what's typical stresses you're getting on this thing, and understand those failure mechanisms, and don't ignore the second-order effects, because in your circumstance, that may be dominant. Like right. the salt on the coast, right. they didn't want it. They, well, we only use di- distilled water in our chambers. I think, I <laughs> not terribly useful. Well, that's another corrosion, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. No, there's an, all kinds <laughs> people, of weird stuff. People yeah. don't realize water is too clean. Pure and, water is is corrosive. It's known as the universal solvent for a reason. It's um, <laughs> takes everything apart. But anyway, the the idea of thinking through, you know, what are you studying trying to model? What kind of test you're running? What kind of analysis you're doing? Right. Uh, most of that kind of work is just an estimate. And so stepping back and thinking through, am I working on the right estimates of the ones that matter, the ones we can right. do anything about? Um, and at some point they have to be validated. You have to show that that's either from field data or field or, or t- own testing. Yeah. Well, well, that brings up a whole other topic. How do you <laughs> go about proving this stuff? <laughs> yeah. But that's another topic. Right. But anyway, it was an interesting question back and forth. I've, I've talked about it on another episode uh, more directly of what the, the degradation data or estimate or a data analysis was or Maybe I haven't yet. I'm not sure. It's in my list to talk about. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I knew that I, I wouldn't want to bore you, Kirk, with talking about data analysis for degradation <laughs> of a crack propagation. You know, well, some that, critical yeah. modeling techniques there. Right. I'm so, I, I, I believe any of that if you show me the that you validated it with real data. Oh, we don't have time for that. You know, it, it <laughs> no. takes years. Just believe me. <laughs> yeah, just believe me. Here's, I ran it out to 16 digits. It must be true. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But anyway, if, uh, if you got a question or interesting failure mechanism or modeling or whatever you're working on, let us know. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR, and you can find a, a couple of different ways to get in touch with us. Kirk and I and the other hosts are available through LinkedIn or through our about pages where many of us have contact and or just our email directly there. And uh, given the last week, apparently the words got out or it's just gotten through the holidays and people in February when we're recording this have figured out they got questions and so <laughs> we've been getting a few of them so we appreciate that and uh, Kirk I'll have to take a look at the stack we got and see what we, okay. we could talk about next yeah we love those questions so keep sending them in and thanks for listening everybody All right. thanks Kirk thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.